Well, good morning, and again, happy Sunday, but also happy Advent season. Um, as you saw, we've read 1 Samuel chapter 2, and that's not by mistake, but we will actually be preaching from Psalm, 1 Samuel chapter 1. The reason we chose chapter 2, shorter, but also it clearly points us to Christ. You saw the connection between Luke 1 and what, what Hannah is saying in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Bear with me. This is a uh, rather hard season, so if I seem distracted, if you're stiffing that out, you're stiffing it out. I'm not one to typically be afraid of, of, the, of what's been going on this season, but my mother and my father and my sister, and they've all tested positive for COVID, so be in prayer for them. I share that with you to, to let you in into the secret of my heart right now, not to be dramatic. I don't mean to be dramatic. But as I, as I was preparing this sermon this week, and I received a text message from my mom, and then again from my sister saying that it gotten worse for my mother. She's not hospitalized, so she's on the mend, so praise the Lord. But I got so distracted because I just wanted to preach. I, all, I just wanted to preach as though, I just wanted to preach to you and not to me. How, how shameful is that? That's all I wanted to do. Let me just get these words on paper, fix it up neatly and nicely. But now, this text preaches to me. And that makes it so much harder. Because like Hannah here in chapter 1, which we will look at quickly, it, it's, it can be hard to see the, the goodness of God during seasons like this. It can be hard to pray day in and day out, constantly, and you receive no answer to your prayer, seemingly. It can be devastating. It can be soul-crushing, can it not? When you look around at just our climate as a whole, a question can rise up, where on earth is God? Where is he? Why isn't he fixing all this? And the illustration I thought is there's, there's times I, when I'm traveling, I come across these old farms or dilapidated buildings. And I actually like seeing these, these old run-down buildings, not because they're run-down, but because I start wondering what was this building like in its glory? And then another phenomenon I love seeing, in that, on that same property, let's just say the property had concrete. There's cracks in the concrete, and all of a sudden you see there's this little weed or tree that sprouts up through the concrete. 
And you're wondering, how on earth did that little thing make it through the concrete? How did it break through? It's unexpected. No one expects. If you, if, for all you gardeners in there, I'm, I'm stating the obvious. You don't plant a garden and then layer with concrete and expect it to grow. But there it is, this, 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 this tree breaking through the rubble. It's mind-blowing, actually, and that's what our text actually shows this morning. That God has a way of breaking through. His grace, His glory, and His power have a way, and they always do, of breaking through. We should expect it. We should expect it. Yahweh's rule can seem so inconspicuous, but it's never absent. It can seem so unimpressive, like that stubborn little tree, easily missed if you weren't looking. But what is our, what, what does 1 Samuel 2, what did it say there? You notice how verbose it was? You notice how it seemed to be speaking in hyperbole? The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap and inherit a seat of honor. It can sound so hyperbolic, can it? But here's the thing. You can never speak of omnipotence in hyperbole. Ever. What chapter 2 declares, chapter 1 demonstrates. In other words, when we least expected God's grace and his glory and his power break through in the most unexpected ways, he always simply knows how to work out everything for his own glory and our eternal good. Everything. Not some things. Not everything except this thing. Not most things. But every single thing. from the particles that are floating through this air right now to your eternal destiny. Everything he works out for his own glory and his own good. So that's what I want us to see this morning, is God's grace and glory and his rule breaking through in the most unimpressive ways. And I want you to see, I want you to, like a hunter, learn how to track down and to be sensitive to all the little ways Yahweh breaks through in your life. And ultimately, we want, I want us to see the trajectory and how this text points us clearly to the ultimate breakthrough, and that is heaven breaking through and into earth itself in Jesus Christ. So I have three headings that I want us to look at, chapter 1, underneath. The beginning of Yahweh's work. The marvel of Yahweh's listening ear and the miracle of Yahweh's mercy. Did you get those? The beginning of Yahweh's work. The marvel of Yahweh's listening ear. And the miracle of Yahweh's mercy. With that being said, let's pray. Oh, Father, 
we lift up our voices to you. We lift up our hearts to you. We thank you, Lord, that you are present with us right now. Your presence is so real. It's so true and it's so comforting. So we ask, O oh Lord, that you do what only you can do, and that is make your word effectual, that you open eyes and open hearts to receive your word, that you comfort those who are discomforted, that you bring peace to those who may be experiencing anxiety and fear. Oh, Father, we beg you that you be with us this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So the beginning of Yahweh's work. Well, we learned last week, we, we actually we heard a sermon last week from the book of Judges. Well, believe it or not, 1 Samuel chapter 1 takes place within the same time frame. Not much has changed since the days of the Judges when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Not much has changed. A few things to note. Israel was still a political disaster. A, a theme dominating the, previ- the cha- um, judges, all throughout judges, a, a dominant theme that you hear said throughout, there was no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel. That is a theme that you, when you read Judges, especially read Judges chapter 17, verses through 17 through 21. You read that and you'll see how horrendous the climax of, of that of, of judges, how horrendous Israel was as a nation. Fighting and fracturing amongst one another, their own version of a civil war. Israel is a political disaster. Men were a law unto themselves. And that's not good, to be a law unto oneself. As a matter of fact, that's the very definition of sin that we find in the New Testament. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness, 1 John 3, 4 says. Lawlessness, that's Israel as a nation, no king, political disaster. Not only are they in a political disaster, they are in religious decline. Again, we heard last week. What else is another theme running through the book of Judges? Not only does Israel have no king, but everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Not only that, it says over and over and over again, like a conveyor belt, producing the same product, delivering the same product. Judges has this mantra parading throughout. Judges, it says, in Israel again, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Political disaster, religious decline. That's where they're at. But what's even more sinister about this religious decline, which is, which is connected to the political disaster, Israel had a king. Did you know that? Israel had a king. 1 Samuel 12, 12 says, When you saw that Nahash the king of the sons of Ammon came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord your God was your king. See, the problem with Israel was not that they didn't have a king. They rejected the king they already had. They were a law unto themselves. Israel was in a religious decline. Not only were they in a religious decline, Israel was in a theological 
desert. There was, no, there was scarcely a word from Yahweh at this point. As a matter of fact, you turn two chapters over in 1 Samuel, you'll see it says this. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli, and the word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. As water is rare in desert, so God's word was rare in those days. And that's not just an historical observation. It's a sign of cultural deprivation to have no word from Yahweh, to have no Bible, to have no sermons on Sunday or on Saturday, to have none of it, to have no law, to have no fresh word from the Lord coming from the pulpits. That's what Israel was in. Ezekiel described it this way and what it looked like. Those who are sickly, speaking to the preachers of the day, those who are sickly, you have not strengthened, and the disease you have not healed, the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and severity you have dominated them. They, being God's people, were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. Israel at this point, is in a theological desert. God seemed silent, and here's why they had no prophet. This is the backdrop. This is the backdrop of 1 Samuel chapter 1. Political disaster, religious decline, theological desert. Israel, to put it plainly, is a hot mess. They're a hot mess. So, question. Where would you expect God to begin his saving work? Where would you expect God to begin changing things? Would you expect him to slap on some king into the scene and say, here, have the king? No. That's not how God starts. And that's when we come into our text. He starts in a back country, in the hills, in a small town called Ephraim, in the life of this woman, Hannah. That's where he starts. So let me read verses 1 through 10 really quick. Now there was a certain man from Ramathim Zophim from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jerome, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, the name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship, to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord there. When the, when the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina and his wife and to all her sons and all her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she, being Hannah, wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? 
And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli was a priest sitting on the seat of the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, being Hannah, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. First, in our text, we, we, when we meet Elkanah, we see his pedigree. That's the, that's the point in listing off all of his fathers, all the way up to his great-grandfather. Eli came from good stock. Let's just put it that way. If you saw Eli walking in here and you said, oh, what's your name? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm Elkanah. You would say, oh, I know your father. Your, your father was a good father. Quite frankly, he was obviously a wealthy man. He had, he, he had to provide for two wives and, and children. So Elkanah was a well-to-do man. But Elkanah also had a predicament. He had two wives. This is a predicament, and we, see, we saw it laid out in our text. You have two wives who are rivals amongst one another. And he, here he is in the middle trying to be somewhat of a mediator. He can't solve Hannah's problem. For the Lord had closed her womb. He has to take care of all of his other wife's children, Peninnah's children. This is a predicament um, Elkanah is in. And you may be wondering, doesn't, isn't Elkanah a, 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 a Jew? Shouldn't he know that God created marriage to be only between one woman and one man? How could he be so blatantly blind to that? Well, our text doesn't condemn Elkanah here. And our text doesn't take us to answer that question. But here's what we can do. We can look in our own mirrors and say, you know, we too are often more culturally driven and theologically driven. We too can be that way. We must move on. We see Elkanah's pedigree, his predicament, but we also see his piety. He's a, he's a godly man. In the midst of all this, he is a godly, godly man. Every year he goes up to Shiloh to worship the Lord of hosts and to make sacrifices. He is committed to the yearly worship, well, daily, but the special season. He would go up every year to worship Yahweh. If you looked on Elkanah's calendar, you wouldn't just see July 4th, I am going to Jerusalem to celebrate our independence from Egypt. And I'm going to have a great time. You would see also in this calendar, I get to go worship Yahweh. I had to get to go worship the Lord. I'm committed to that, to bring my family with me. That's his piety, but it's also a test of piety. Did you notice who was also priest of the Lord there? Eli's two evil sons. Hophni and Phinehas. You have to read chapter 2 to see how wicked they actually were. But his, he, it was a tested piety. Eli was going to church. That was messed up. That was compromised. One's receiving his sacrifice. The one's receiving all that Elkanah brought. We're evil. And yet... Elkanah was still committed to going. We also see Elkanah as a passionate man. He loves his family. So much so that he, he knows that Hannah is struggling with her infertility. 
with her barrenness. He knows it. So he will give her a double portion. Why? Because he loved Hannah. It emphasizes his love for Hannah. He loved Hannah. So that's talking about the text now hinges and it turns to Hannah. And like a microscope, it zooms in on her plight. What is her plight? We saw it listed several times. The Lord closed her womb. The Lord closed her womb. This was a haunting reality for Hannah. It was a haunting reality. If she would have turned on the TV, she would see commercials with children. When she listened to songs on the radio, she would hear songs about children. When she goes to church, she would hear sermons about women with children, and she would feel left. That's Hannah's plight. And the other wife used this as a way to provoke her. We'll get more on that later. It's one thing to have an an unmet desire and even to be mocked for it. But it's a whole other thing when Yahweh himself has withheld the very thing from you. A hope deferred makes the heart sick says Proverbs. A hope deferred makes the heart sick, and her, being had a heart, was sick. And no amount of genuine affection from her husband could mend her broken heart. Have you been there? Are you there right now? Where nothing can solve the brokenness and the turmoil of your own heart. Believe it or not, if you are there, as is Hannah, you are in good company like she is. You are in good company. So where do we see God's grace and his glory break through in this whole scenario? We've said a lot to this point, but quickly, notice the position Hannah is in. The position Hannah is in. She is barren. And that should cue us in all the other barren, the narratives of barren women in the Old Testament. Think of Sarah. For 26 years, she waited for God to fulfill her promise to her that she would bear a son. And she had to look in the mirror every morning, year after year, and to see an aging face look back at her. When it was her birthday, there were too many candles to put on the cake. She certainly passed the, the, the age of childbearing, isn't she? 96 years old. There's no way. And yet God promised her a child. Imagine. But Yahweh know, broke through and a miracle happened and she bore Abraham a child. Or consider Rebecca. Again, barren. And Isaac, her husband, prayed to the Lord on her behalf and she bore to him two sons, Jacob and Esau. Last week we heard about, uh, from the book of Judges and the birth of Samson and Miss Manoah. We don't know her name. All we know is that she was a wife of Manoah. And again, in, in echoing Christ's birth narrative, what do we see? A miracle happened. Here's this woman who's barren, has no children, and Yahweh breaks through. 
Or consider Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, a forerunner of our Savior. Barren. And yet the Lord opened her womb. See, barren women seem to be God's instruments in raising up key figures in the history of redemption. Saviors or preservers of Israel and even the forerunner of Jesus. Hannah shares in the fellowship of barrenness. She shares in the fellowship of those who feel their total inability and weakness. You see, it's Yahweh's tendency to make our total inability his starting point. Our helplessness is often the prop he delights in and to use for his next act. That's the position position that she's in. She is in a long line of women who have experienced the same thing she's experienced, but also the same grace that she is about to experience, the same power, the same glory, the same Yahweh who worked in Sarah is getting ready to work in Hannah. And that should teach us something. That should help us sniff out Yahweh's ways. Are you in a position right now where you sense and you feel your total weakness? That's where he begins his work. It's where he loves to begin his work. Well, not only do we see Hannah positionally, but also providentially, she's sustained. This This may not be as easy to see, but we see it in this fraction, this this, this turmoil between Penina and between Hannah. Penina is an irritant. She's trying to drive Hannah to despair. The way the text writes it, she uses the yearly occasion of worship to prod Hannah, to provoke her. One wonders. What, this converse, what, what, what these conversations look like. We can imagine. Penina says, Hannah, it's dinner time. Can you call my children to the dinner table? My hands are so full from cooking dinner for my children. And she wipes her hands with her kitchen towel. But, but a mother's got to do what a mother's got to do. You understand someday. Until then, keep praying. Wait, wait. Aren't you praying? Hannah, yes, every day. Penina, well, how long has it been? You aren't getting any younger, you know. Are you sure you were praying correctly? I prayed one time, and God answered my prayer fairly quickly. Have you sinned? Because you know that's one sure way to keep your prayers from being answered. Oh, and one more thing, Hannah. And please don't tell Elkanah. I want to surprise him, but I'm pregnant again. He's going to be so happy. What a blessing from the Lord. Don't forget to call my children to the table. Supper is ready. You can imagine. I'm probably being very cheeky there, and I'm probably sure, you know, provocation is a, is a lot more stronger word, but you just wonder, however the conversation went, it provoked Hannah. You would think it would provoke Hannah to, to, to complain against Yahweh. To look and hear Penina's words and to say, you know, she's right. I have prayed 
year in and year out. And by the way, that phrase, yearly, year in and year out, that's another way of saying a long time, a very long time. And God hasn't answered my prayer. I've tried. But Hannah does not complain against God. Penina's provocation pushed Hannah to the throne room of grace. That's the providence there. That's why Penina is a useful irritant. Penina's trying to do one thing, but Yahweh had a whole other agenda. And because, that Yahweh, because Hannah was driven to the throne room of grace, she prayed for a son. And because she prayed for a son, Yahweh answered her prayer. And if we do our spiritual mathematics here, and we understand our theology here, we can say this, that if Penina didn't push Hannah to pray, would we have ever gotten Samuel? I think you can make that argument. Yahweh works in mysterious ways. Should we expect anything less? Should we expect anything less? I'm not trying to downplay Hannah's grief, and we shouldn't downplay our own circumstances, however bleak they may be. But our text does push us, doesn't it? To put our despair in perspective and to moderate it a little bit by realizing it may be another prelude to one of God's mighty acts. So we have seen where Yahweh begins his work. Now let's look at the marvel of Yahweh's listening here. Look at verses 11 through 16. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look at my affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall not come on his head. Hannah prays for a son. But I want us to see, I want us to zoom in on some particulars of this prayer. First, I want, us to, want you to notice her audience. Notice her audience. She had access to Yahweh. She could drop on her knees and, she had, and open her mouth and she had instant access to Yahweh. That is who she had. There's an illustration. I, 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 there's a story I, I love hearing. I forget the individual's name, but it was one of C.S. Lewis's apprentices, you know, close to nearly to the end of C.S. Lewis's life. And this young man was invited to one of the Inkling gatherings. The Inklings were a group of, of um, uh, writers of that day, one of those being C.S. Lewis and another one being um, J.R. Tolkien and several others. And he was invited to come. And they sat at the pub and they were talking about one of C.S. Lewis's books and they were, they were telling C.S. Lewis where he should go with this and where he should go with this. All these intellectual giants. And then C.S. Lewis turns and looks at the, his young apprentice and says, hey, what do you think? Imagine that. Here's a young apprentice, and he gets an audience, he gets an ear with these great intellectual giants. 
He had their ear. You have Yahweh's ear every time you pray. Oh man, one of the things I, I, I most dread, and this may sound blasphemous coming from a pastor, but I sometimes dread praying over a Thanksgiving meal. Or a Christmas meal, or any big gathering. I, sometimes I, I do dread it. Not because I hate praying. God forbid that I ever hate praying. But because everything can seem so theatric in my mind. I, I personally feel, excuse me, I personally feel so scripted. And I quickly go from thank you, Lord, for the food to amen, let's eat. And I can easily forget that I am talking to the king of kings, to the creator of the universe. That he actually listens. Had a hear. Has an audience with the creator, the Lord of hosts. Let your imagination try and catch up with that thought. To catch up with omnipotence. With omnipresence. All-powerful and all-knowing and, all, and everywhere. That's her audience, but also notice her assumption. Not only does she have access to Yahweh, she assumed that Yahweh heard her. That Yahweh actually listened to her. As a matter of fact, when, when you look at the, the, the verb, look on, and the, and the noun affliction, and in this particular construction, as far as I have seen in any study that I've done, that's the only, the only, there's only, that phrase is only put together one other time in the Old Testament. And doesn't it sound like something when she says, look on the affliction of your maidservant? It sounds like Exodus 3-7, where Yahweh himself says, I've seen, same verb, look on, I've seen the affliction of my people. Now, was she thinking about Exodus 3-7? It's possible. It's quite possible that she wasn't thinking about Exodus 3-7. But either way, the assumption there is that God would actually look on here on this woman who's in the back country in the hills, tucked away in, a, in the corner of Israel. That God would hear her prayer. How audacious of us Christians to think that when we lift up our voices that the creator of the heavens and the earth Hears us? Isn't it, isn't it an audacious statement to think that out, out of the millions and millions and millions of Christians on the planet, that when you pray, he hears you? Be audacious because that is true. He does hear you. He listens. That's the assumption that Yahweh has. That's the assumption that we have every time we gather in church and we lift up our voices in praise and we give, offer our thanksgivings and we pray over the meal and we pray for one another. We are assuming that we have Yahweh's listening ear. That's the assumption that she's in. So, dear Christian, pray fervently. Pray frequently. Pray faithfully. Yahweh hears you. And lastly, we'll look at the miracle of Yahweh's mercy. We have seen where his work begins, and we have seen that his, the fact that he listens to us is a marvelous thing. Now, there is a miracle here. 
And the miracle is mercy. Yahweh remembers her. After going through this bout with Penina and after praying and after dealing with Eli, this, the priest there, a man with no backbone, a man who is so quick to, to criticize and to bully, in a sense, Hannah, when his two sons, he's afraid to even kick out of the priesthood when he should have. After all this, what happens? In response to Hannah's prayer to remember, Yahweh says later, he remembered her. He remembered her. After Elkanah and Hannah went after their morning worship and they went back home and they did what married couples do, and and Yahweh blessed her. That's the mercy there. But the mercy goes much deeper than that. It's not just that, oh, now she has a son. That's Yahweh's mercy and Yahweh's miracle. Look at verse 20 in particular. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel, saying, because I've asked, because I've asked him of the Lord. That phrase there, gave birth to a son. Remember where Yahweh's work begins? In the place of, of, the place of human inability, excuse me. Remember the, the, the backdrop, the cultural backdrop of Israel, how, how much of a mess they were. And remember the question I asked you earlier, how, where would you expect Yahweh to begin his saving work? Well, here's the answer. Throughout Scripture, he gives us a son he raises up leaders. He gives us a son. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And a favorite Christian, a famous Christmas one. For unto us a child is born. For unto us a child, a son, is given. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. A baby boy. Mighty God. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Do you see the theme? All throughout Scripture, leading up to the birth of our Savior, When there is a problem, God gives a son. And that says a lot about Yahweh. He is in no rush. He's not sitting on his throne right now, swarming in his seat, wondering what's he going to do next. No, 
He gives a son. He gave us his son. He gave you his son. And marvel at, the, at who the son was. Marvel at it. Listen to this, this quote by John Flavel. It would have seemed a rude blasphemy had not the scriptures plainly revealed it to have thought or spoken of eternal God as born in time, the world's creator as a creature, the ancient of days as an infant of days. He gave us a son, and this son whom he gave us was the son of God himself, born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, given for you, You know, the backdrop of your life and of my life is not just our immediate history. As true as that is. It's also the scriptures and the history that they portray. We are in the same line. We are in the same need of a Savior. So this Advent season, be on the lookout and track down all of Yahweh's ways, his little saving helps to help you, and let them point you to, the, to our true help in Jesus Christ. Amen? So we've seen it yet again, the way in which God defies all of our wisdom and expectations. The way in which we come to a season where we remember the advent, the coming of God. We've seen these comings in these manners of birth narratives, even preceding the birth narrative of Christ. Here again, we've seen it in Samuel. And especially I appreciate the message that God has given us today. God listens. God listens. I want to take a moment as we come to this table to voice our prayers. Prayers that might in many ways reflect the prayer of of Hannah. You know of those who are desperate in your life. You know of your own life and the aspects of things that are desperate. I want to let us now, as we come to this table, come with our prayers, with a word, maybe a phrase. God will fill in all the circumstances around it. I invite you downstairs, I invite you at Zoom, and I invite you in this room here. Just speak a word into the space. God's listening. 
Are you thinking about that word that you want to speak? Are you thinking about that phrase? Where do you need and want God to listen? I call us now to pray as we come to this table. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. And in all of our desperate situations, of our circumstances that seem so far removed from fanfare and observation, we know, Lord, that you listen. And so hear our prayers. Again, in a word or a phrase, would you lift up your prayers to God at this time? Nathan and Colleen. CPC New Haven. For our health workers. Jerry's family. 